Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? No, not at all. I am Richard Serrett, your mad prophet of the airwaves, and I meddle with the primal forces of nature every Monday through Friday here on the Mighty Saga 960. Welcome to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground for Monday, April the 11th in the year of our Lord 2022. And good afternoon, good afternoon to everyone except the evil and cruel rulers of communist China who are locking up about 30 million people in Shanghai, 30 million locked up in their apartments in pursuit of this insane COVID zero policy. 30 million people shut off without access to food or water. They're constantly being surveilled by drones which buzz overhead their homes, warning them and threatening them with fines and prisons if they leave their apartments. And there are reports of people, get this, jumping off balconies there, taking their own lives in desperation. Public health officials collecting cats and dogs from COVID patients, their apartments, and killing them on the spot. This is communist China 
This is the basic dictatorship, gropey blackface our crime minister admires so much. And this is where the insane policy of COVID zero leads. This is a recording from a resident of Shanghai recorded on a phone outside uh, in Shanghai. In the video, you can see dozens and dozens of apartment buildings and you can hear the cries of desperation. Have a listen. Just listen to that. Listen to the desperation. So once again, all the neurotic adult hypochondriacs are pushing for mask mandates. And uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, chief medical officer of health in Ontario, said, ah, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. In fact, you know, it's probably not a bad idea in, indoors. Uh, but we're not going to uh, overwhelm our hospitals with this uh, current wave. You see, you should, have, you should have heard the media. They went apoplectic. They were practically begging him. They're supposed to be unbiased journalists. They were begging him, why aren't you making us wear masks? It was embarrassing. Embarrassing. They want our children to wear masks forever. It's their epic mission because they have empty lives. They love the power. They, they never miss an opportunity to virtue signal and show how morally superior they are and how much they care about you and me because they're wearing masks. So this sixth wave looks like it's getting ready to peak because that's what viruses do. And because it's seasonal. And so what the COVID cultists or the branch COVIDians are afraid of is the wave is going to collapse and it will all on its own without mask mandates, without lockdowns, without vaccine passports. And this is going to expose the lie that these public health measures do anything. That's what's at stake for the branch COVIDians and for people whose lives are ruled by this religion, which has as its main tenet of faith that we must stamp out risk, that safety and zero risk and the collectivist mantra of, for the greater good, trumps individual rights and freedoms. And you can spot the adherence to this false god. They spell freedom, F-R-E-E-D-U-M-B. Oh, how clever. How very witty, Wild. That's it. Adherence to the religion of safety and reduce risk at the expense of all else are about to learn they've been praying at the wrong altar. And that's going to be very difficult for many of them. They won't be able to deal with this cognitive dissonance. So if you're at Food Basics, maybe in the parking lot over the next couple of weeks, and you see someone who is triple masked in the uh, you know, again, in, in the parking lot, suddenly fall to their knees and look to their look to the sky and start shaking their fist and yelling and screaming and crying like some woke Democrat on U.S. election night in 2016. Have pity. Be kind. They're about to lose their religion. Speaking of cults, uh, this man is an incredible weirdo. A weirdo with an incredible amount, a dangerous amount of power and influence. Klaus Schwab 
founder of the cult known as the World Economic Forum, a club for the world's elites who want to tell you how you should live your life. And their prescriptions for the world's perceived problems are cancerous. Have a listen. I created the community of global shapers as a means, as a force to shape our common future. This engagement of the young generation never has been more important than now where we have to face the consequences of the pandemic of COVID-19 for creating a more resilient, a more sustainable and a more inclusive world. You are calling for the international community to safeguard vaccine equity to respond to COVID-19 and prevent future health crises. Nobody will be safe if not everybody is vaccinated. Young people, you are rallying behind the global wealth tax to manage the alarming surge in wealth inequality. You are calling for programs that help you and young progressive voices join government and become policymakers. To limit global warming, you are demanding to halt to coal, oil, and gas exploration. You are asking firms to replace any corporate board directors who is unwilling to transition to cleaner energy sources. There you go. Now, did you catch it? Did you catch what he said? Have a listen. Nobody will be safe if not everybody is vaccinated. Nobody will be safe. Nobody will be safe. Nobody will be safe. That's right. If you don't get vaccinated, we're coming for you. Nobody will be safe if not everybody is vaccinated. Nobody will be safe. Nobody will be safe. Nobody will be safe. There you go. Klaus Schwab, the newest James Bond villain. Have you seen photos of this guy parading around on uh, beaches wearing the strangest costumes? Strange leather thongs. He's 80 years old. And yet he has such incredible influence. It's bizarre. So will you look at this lineup, Jacob and Brandon? I mean, it's radio gold. So here's what we'll do. We'll do the show. And then you just put this show in a box and you ship it off to the Smithsonian or the uh, Canadian Talk Show Hall of Fame. Sound like a plan? All right. Uh, So last order of business in hour two. A law professor at Lakehead University says we have to hold Trudeau and his cabinet accountable for using the Emergencies Act, especially since, uh, well, they lied and misled the public in order to justify the Emergencies Act. That'll be last order of business. You need further proof gropey blackface loves China's basic dictatorship. Look at the budget buried in there. I think it was like page 200 or something. Somebody found it. Trudeau's government is laying the groundwork to bring in a CBDC. That's the central bank digital currency. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. It's a cons- it's in the budget. Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph will be here with the details on this dystopian nightmare. An open letter warning to the Ontario government about Bill C-67. We've talked about it at length on this program. 
a bill to further codify CRT in our schools. I'll speak with uh, the author of that letter, a professor of economics at the University of Guelph. A lot of smart people on the show. Wow. And that's just hour two. Coming up this hour. Monday, we help you prepare for the coming zombie apocalypse or maybe just the next extended power outage. Whichever comes first, Stefan Verstappen is the survivalist and we'll begin what will be a lengthy discussion on uh, how to build communities, a parallel society. But first, trans rights extremism is spreading like wildfire in Ontario schools. Sue Ann Levy is standing by with that. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Monday, April 11th. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Let's give a, a warm welcome to uh, Declan Phillips, who has uh, temporarily taken over on the uh, the big audio board at the mighty Saga 960. Declan, welcome. All right, if uh, you have a daughter attending a high school in the Halton, Halton uh, District School Board, how do you feel about this? If there is a student in that high school, let's say a, bio- a biological male who self-identifies as a female, that biological male will be allowed to choose whichever change room or bathroom they feel fits their gender. Whatever room is most gender affirming. And if your daughter is uncomfortable with that, well, she'll just have to change elsewhere. How do you feel about that? Sue Ann Levy is with us uh, to discuss. She's a, an investigative journalist. She's a contributor to True North and, of course, author of Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Sue Ann, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Richard? I'm I'm pretty good, and then and then I read this, and I thought, oh, here we go again with yet another dystopian nightmare. So, how did you find out about what's going on, for example, at Halton uh, in the Halton District School Board? Well, it was a couple of things. Um, we got a tip about Halton, or actually, you know, Jonathan Kay, bless him, and I have been tag teaming uh, to find the most outrageous things going on in various school boards. So, um, he actually tweeted about this, and I was working on um a piece on the Toronto School Board and what they're doing uh, with respect to not letting kids uh, or saying that kids had could use whatever bathroom they wanted uh, and training teachers to that effect. And then Halton actually looked up their policy and it was even worse or even more draconian uh, about uh, than the Toronto School Board policy. But lest I say, there, it's spreading like wildfire across all school boards. It's not just Toronto or Halton. So, um, I mean, that's that's basically the gist of it, right? In, in Halton, as far as we know, if any, any uh, biological male student can wander into a girl's change room fully mm-hmm. intact, I think people understand the meaning yes. there, fully intact, yeah. change in front of somebody's daughter. Yes, and it's it's the washrooms, it's the change rooms for gym or health or whatever they do these days in schools. And it's also on school trips. I mean, they included the idea of school trips that accommodation has to be made uh, for kids who are 
perhaps questioning or transitioning and want to go on a school field trip. I mean, talk about bending over backwards. Uh, it actually goes a little further than that. I think they're actually grooming these kids um, at a very young age to uh, question their gender ideology, to gender, just question their gender. Um, and, you know, We've said this before, Richard. We've talked about this. Let kids be kids. It's crazy. Right. And, and there's also, according to this document, I guess you, you obtained, that the, these students, many of whom would be, would be minors, most of them would be minors. Of my, right. Uh, they, the, the parents are not to be told uh, about this gender identity. This That's is the gift from the yeah. parents. Yeah, that's the big thing. And that's what started with the Toronto School Board. Um, and there was, a, I guess, a talk or whatever going on last week at one of the high schools in Toronto. I would suspect that it's going on at other high schools where 19 uh, transitioning kids or, you know, questioning and their allies did a whole um, presentation about, you know, the new rules, the new rules that the school board has adopted, the Toronto School Board, and Halton, that if a, a kid identifies as, you know, perhaps transitioning, wants a new name, uh, is getting rid of their old name, they call it the dead name, that the even if they're under 18, uh, the parents are not to be told. It's to be kept secret. That's just unconscionable. I wonder how many parents are aware of what's happening in, in, in that school board. Do you, do you suspect that many know? I think they're starting to wake up. Um, I think COVID and, and the fact that they learned online kind of triggered a lot of stuff, a lot of more awareness, but I don't think they understand how deeply embedded this is now in policies, in guidelines, they're having whole, uh, presentations like the, the couple of teachers approached me from this particular high school and said, I, I'm really, really upset because I don't think parents are aware and they should be made aware of what's going on that this fringe majority is pushing their agenda. So it's a fringe majority of teachers, a fringe majority of students, most of them probably graduating and leaving the school system this year, pushing this on everyone on kids from elementary school right up to, you know, grade 12. Now, is this a school board by school board decision, uh, or is this also being supported and implemented from the top down from the ministry? It is being implemented by the ministry as well. So one of the big mistakes I felt that Doug Ford made and Stephen Lecce was not to get rid of the very woke people within the ministry that probably came in during the Kathleen Wynne era, uh, probably, um, and started to change the policy, school board policies about gender, about LGBTQRSUV issues. And Doug Ford never went in, or Stephen Lecce, and cleaned house. And that was a huge mistake. These people are still operating, and they have put in place, you know, a lot of these policies. Toronto School Board has taken that one step further, but, you know, it, it has come from the top down. You're absolutely right. 
All right, Sue Ann, we'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss further. This is too important just to leave it to one segment. Sue Ann Levy is uh, with us, investigative journalist, contributor to True North, and author of Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. Two years ago, maybe... If a, uh, a male adolescent walked into a girl's change room and removed his clothing, the police would be called. Now, if a biological male walks into a, a girl's change room in school, removes his clothing in front of her, if that girl is uncomfortable, she will be asked to change elsewhere. This is the Monty Python-esque world that we're living in. Sue Ann Levy is uh, with us talking about how trans rights activism, extremism, really, is spreading like wildfire in Ontario schools. Um, And you mentioned that this this extends to uh, school excursions and trips. Let's say there's an overnight excursion. They're staying in a hotel room. A biological male who self-identifies as a as a as a girl. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. It's Superstart Battery Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Get up to a $25 gift card after rebate with the purchase of select Superstart batteries. Our professional parts people will test your old battery for free and recommend the right battery for your vehicle. For power, performance, and reliability, choose Superstart batteries only at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Could, could ask to bunk with another girl. Could, and if the girl feels uncomfortable, then the same thing would happen. The girl would have to change rooms. Um, and the interesting thing in the policy, as I read it, is that the school board was prepared to go as far as to fund, say, a single room. So they would buy a block of rooms and it would be double occupancy, one would assume, and they're prepared to fund a single occupancy for someone who is, I guess, identifying as female or feels they may be female and is a male. And um, also some interesting, well, not interesting, some unfortunate uh, policies concerning uh, girls sports. Mm-hmm. A-, a la Leah Thomas, explain. Yeah. Uh, so Halton is really hep on allowing uh, 
again, men, uh, young men who identify as female to compete against females in at that level in the intramural or at the school level and say track meets or whatever. I mean, you know, it's filtered right down into the school system. It's so sad. I feel so sad for the young girls who are trying to make it in track, perhaps trying to get a scholarship to university, who have to compete against a Leah Thomas type of person um, at the school level or at the intramural level. I mean, it's, it's wokeism gone mad. It's absolutely fringe politics. And, you know, I have a theory, Richard. I think that in a gay people like me and I was never an activist I've just taken advantage and I of the activism that went on many moons ago I think the gay activists have gotten everything they want so they had to turn to something else the the radical activists I would venture to say that most many trans people and many gay people the majority don't agree with these extremist politics at all right right um I have a feeling you're right I mean I have no way of knowing that but uh, it may, it would make sense. And, and here's the thing is, and I've said this repeatedly on, on Thursdays when we, we do a segment called In Defense of Women and trying to protect women-only spaces, women's sports, um, uh, you know, trying to prevent or raise awareness that violent male offenders who suddenly wake up and identify, self-identify as female are being placed in women's-only prisons, mm-hmm. uh, that – you know, this is this is not about uh, trying to deny transgendered people basic uh, human rights. I mean, everyone is deserving of that. Uh, but this is also trying to protect women's rights. Absolutely. And why are they taking a back seat? Why do they have well, to take a back seat? Well, you know, and it's interesting the feminists haven't spoken up. And I've said this all along about someone like Aaliyah Thomas or somebody who's competing in sports. You haven't heard from the feminists. They've been suspiciously silent. Um, I don't know why women are allowing this to happen because um, it's, it's just crazy. And it, it, you know, it just makes no sense. And I will remind you um, just, uh, when was it about two years ago, there was a speaker who was coming, who came to Palmerston library in Toronto to speak a woman who wrote, precisely about that and she was a feminist and the efforts to try and get her canceled the protests out front I mean I truly feel that the extremists have just have to have had to grab on to something they need something to fight to protest and I'm afraid that it's going to damage a lot of you know it's not good for kids and parents have to make themselves aware of what's going on and speak out because I, I think this will really affect particularly young, young ladies. And, you know, they say in the policy, in the Halton policy, if, for example, the guy, you know, one male student isn't really uh, transgendered, is just trying to get into a washroom and, you know, expose himself or do nefarious things, well, then they might consider, a, you know, a conduct complaint. They might consider. Why put a young lady or ladies in that situation in the first place? And let's not forget that a lot of schools now have gender-neutral washrooms. So why can't they use the gender-neutral washrooms? Such a simple fix. We've had those for 50 years. Yeah. Right? It's, it's such crazy. a simple fix because it's not about that. It's not about 
providing access to facilities for everyone. It's not about that. It's about making this statement and hitting us over the head with it and shoving it down our throat. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, like I said, I think they're putting, I don't think if a female walks into a male washroom and frankly, I've used the odd male washroom now and then when there's a long lineup for the female washroom, but no men are in there. I don't think it's, I think it's the other way around. And I think a lot of young ladies are going to be extremely uncomfortable and they may actually be put in some sort of dangerous position and uh, a shame on school boards for doing this. Well, if, if there are parents out there listening who have children at uh, students at a Halton school board, high school, uh, and you're concerned about this, call, call the high school, call your trustee, uh, be polite, be respectful, but be firm and, and voice your objection to this in no uncertain terms. But again, be polite, be firm, be respectful, but make sure, be, but be, be sure to make yourself heard. Sue Ann, thank you for uh, some amazing work again on this. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. More to come, Richard. Oh, that's the unfortunate part. You're <laughs> going to be very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. All right. Sue Ann Levy, investigative journalist, True North contributor. All right. When we come back, emergency preparedness expert Stefan Verstappen talks about building communities. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Well, as we always say, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And uh, here to help us uh, prepare for the worst is our emergency preparedness expert, author, Stefan Verstappen, the website ChinaStrategies.com. Stefan, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing fine, Richard. How are you doing? Terrific. So over the last several weeks, we've been talking about how to uh, prepare. It could be any emergency. It could be um, an extended power outage due to an ice storm. We've certainly experienced that for from time to time here in Ontario. That's likely, you know, not going to get any better. Our power grid, uh, not in the best of shape. And, um, you know, we've talked about uh, emergency food stores, emergency water, emergency medicine uh, stores, how to, uh, you know, how to stock up your pantry and your water and your uh, uh, you know, drugs and 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 uh, first aid kits and so forth. We've talked about communication. Um, you know, hand cranked radios and and ham radios. Uh, today we're gonna we're gonna kind of shift gears and talk sort of more from the thirty thousand foot perspective, and that is how to surround yourself uh, with a support group, an extended family, an extended support group. Um, a community, basically, and you have an online course at ChinaStrategies.com called The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. Uh, so first of all, why why do we need, to, people might say, well, I already, I, you know, I, I, I belong to a church group or, you know, I get along with my neighbors. I go curling every Tuesday. I have my community. What do you mean by a community? Well, a community is a group of people that have the same objectives more or less the same ideology and um, that come together for a common purpose. Now, the reason we're t- talking about communities is because, well, the previous, you know, my talks we gave, we talked about, you know, uh, food and water and, and, and being prepared for a disaster. But I believe that we are facing a monumental disaster the disaster of the complete collapse of our civilization. Uh, 
And look around you right now. We can see it's already starting to collapse. Many people have predicted the collapse of Western civilization. I myself have predicted it in my essay and my YouTube video called uh, Historical Cycles, Are We Doomed to Repeat the Past? In which I showed that history follows a certain pattern and that all civilizations rise and fall. And I believe we are in the stages where our civilization is falling. And look around. Everything is collapsing. Um, the monetary system, we are being hit with hyperinflation like we've never seen before. And eventually this is going to destroy our monetary system. And then what are we going to do? Then look at our medical system. Personally, I, I have not been to a doctor in 45 years. I will not go to a doctor. I won't go to a hospital. That's just me. I'm pretty healthy. I know my body. But even if you wanted to go to a doctor, can you go and see one? Do you trust them? Look at the events over the last two years. If that doesn't put doubt into your mind over the competency of our medical system, then nothing will. And we can see it certainly in the United States. We see it in England. And we're starting to see it here in Canada that our medical system is collapsing. Well, what else is collapsing? Well, the educational system. Um, look at what they're teaching children in school. They're coming out of school dumber than ever before. And of course, it, this is done by purpose. So what are we going to do when the schools are no longer functioning? Where are you going to send your kids? How are you going to educate your children? Now, the other thing we're looking at is a complete uh, collapse of the supply chain. And we're going to be facing food shortages so how where are you going to buy your groceries where are you going to get food we already see the early signs of a collapse of civilization and as a, a prepper or somebody that wants to survive um what is the solution when all of these things are gone now we cannot stockpile enough food we can't do everything ourselves and so what i did was i looked back through history what did our great-great-grandparents do? You know, long before the welfare state, long before the health system, long before, um, you know, the modern world, people, our great-great-grandparents, the early pioneers and explorers of this country, had to fend for themselves. They had to do all of this for themselves. And how did they do it? They did it by creating communities. And these communities provided all of those things I just mentioned, health care, food, education, and banking, things like that. And they were far more successful at doing that than our current government is doing. So we got to go back to the old ways, Richard. So the, the Complete Guide to Forming Communities, uh, which available is available online at chinastrategies.com, and we'll be talking about this over the course of the next several weeks at least, um, you, you'll teach people... Um, I mean, do you, do you recommend, well, we'll get into this in the second, uh, in the second segment coming up, but I'd be curious to know, I mean, do you, do you, do you need to, do you need to make it a legal entity? Do you need to incorporate? Um, how do you, how do you, uh, if you're not a lawyer, you know, how do you put these legal documents together? Um, who do you choose? Who gets into the community? What kind of people do you need, uh, to form a complete, you know, self-contained unit, if you will? Stefan Verstappen. Uh, is our emergency preparedness expert, and uh, we're talking survival 
post-apocalypse. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. We're learning about forming communities. And, you know, when you think about it, there's no downside to this. At the end of the day, you may not just end up saving some money, kind of a hedge against inflation, as we'll, uh, as we'll discuss. There's no downside. Uh, you make some new friends. Uh, you get to associate with like-minded people. And you learn a little bit about self-sufficiency. And if, you know, the big asteroid, uh, uh, col- um, you know, collision doesn't happen or there's no EMP event or Western civilization lives to fight another day, then great. No downside here. Um, Stefan Verstappen, ChinaStrategies.com. So first of all, let's let's talk generally about the. I mean, who do you need in your life, uh, in in this community to to become sort of this parallel polis or society and a, a self sustained community? Kinds of people you should have. The first kind of people you need to have is people that you can trust, people like yourself, and people that have um, skills people that can do things, people that can organize, that can work together. And this is very difficult, Richard. This is the most difficult part of forming a community is finding the right kind of people. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. Number one, the government, the powers that be, have worked ceaselessly to cause division amongst the people. We are you know, at each other's throats over a thousand different issues. Families can't get along. Friends can't get along. Uh, you and your school friends can't talk to each other anymore. Everybody is bickering and fighting amongst each other over all kinds of ac- absolutely ridiculous issues, made up issues. And But this is done on purpose. The government, going back as far as you can reach, uh, research it, does not want people to work together if we work together then we don't need the government and then they don't have power over us for example if we source our own medical insurance and that's one of the dozens of communities you could you could start yourself it's a co-op it's a medical insurance co-op you get together with 10 other families and you buy your own medical insurance at a discount far cheaper than you could buy it by yourself and this is what our great-grandparents did that's how they provided for their own uh, health needs as they pooled their money even if it's not the end of the world you're already going to save money on health insurance same thing with food. You form a food co-op. You work together. I'm joining one. I'll be there this Thursday here where I live in southwestern Ontario, a very strong Mennonite community. There is a community here already. They have a food co-op. co-op. You invest and whatever money you want to invest, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, you invest it in the local farmers. And then when the crops come through, you will get a big box of vegetables and produce and whatever it is that that farmer is producing and you'll get your hundred dollars worth in produce back this will save you a lot of money you know from not having to buy it at the grocery store they also have numerous other uh, cooperative adventures whereby for example they have a labor board so if you need somebody to do fencing in your house you can call them they they'll have the fencers they have the electricians they have the mechanics they'll come and help you and they'll do it at a grave discount so even if it's not the end of the world 
by working together, you will save money, you'll make networking connections. And uh, right now, you know, with the hyperinflation and the way things are going, anytime you can save money is a great thing. Sure, but- we'll come back and, you know, in the coming weeks, we'll talk about some of these other elements in more detail, but just on the, on the, uh, on the forming of a community. Um, and uh, you mentioned like a, a, one aspect of that could be forming a food co-op. You get a bunch of neighbors together, you pool your money. So if you're a food co-op, uh, does that mean that you can buy wholesale and save? You're buying directly from the producers. You're buying directly from the farmers. Now, when the shelves in the grocery store start to go empty, that's because their supply chain has been cut off. But the local farmers, you know, I can, I'm surrounded by farms here. And uh, the local farmers will still be producing. They might not be able to produce enough because of the lack of you know, uh, fertilizer or the lack of transportation to major markets, but they're still producing. And we can go to them directly and buy from them directly and cut out the middleman. So yeah, you can get a good deal on food. Right, because you're buying in bulk. If you have, let's say, 50 people in your community, that's a lot of groceries. So you're buying in bulk. Yes. Uh, and that gives you, uh, you know, some negotiating power. And uh, and if you buy in bulk, things are usually less expensive. And as you say, you're not going to the Safeway or to uh, Sobeys, I guess, uh, or whatever. You're not paying the uh, the markup on the on the food. You're buying directly from the producer as a food co-op. All right. Um, well, um, oh, let's uh, let's find out how do we uh, sign on to the complete guide to forming communities a course. Okay, so it, it's a tricky process creating communities. Like you had all those good questions earlier on, and each one of those questions would require a four-hour seminar to answer correctly. But I've put most of the information on an online course, and to access it directly, you should go to my other website. It's www.formingcommunities.com. Dot com, And there you'll have all the information and you can sign up. And I recommend that when you sign up for the course, uh, you immediately create a small community. You get three, four, five other people chipping on the course. I already spoke with the people that are organizing the course. They have no problem if you want to have four or five people sit in on the course with you. Normally, they would require everybody to pay an individual tuition but we can all pay it as a community. Everybody watch it together. And then after each lesson, discuss it amongst each other. What do you think we should do? What ideas did you like? What ideas did you not like? And by doing so, we begin the conversation of how to put this community together. So it's www.formingcommunities.com. And I go over all the questions that you asked. All right. And we'll go over uh, a lot more. We'll cover a lot of ground in the coming weeks. Stefan Verstappen, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. All right. Plenty of show still to come. Hour two. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. 
Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work. Oh, banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hmm. Had enough? Had enough of the nonsense? All right. We have a, a blockbuster hour coming your way. Again, if you missed hour one, you missed a lot, but uh, there's still plenty of gold to come. Uh, Ryan Alford is a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at uh, Lakehead University and uh, he'll be here to talk about holding the government accountable for using the Emergency Act, not just using the Emergency Act, but justifying the Emergency Act based on a, a pile of lies and misinformation. Oh, look, the truckers are arsonists. They're starting fires. No, it didn't happen. Oh, look, the truckers, they're a bunch of rapists. No evidence. Zero. Oh, look, they have, they have loaded weapons. Didn't happen. I'm going to have a list as long as my arm. All of these things, these narratives pushed by cabinet members and then the media carrying water for them to justify the Emergencies Act. And now they're holding an inquiry. And of course, the liberals would like to move things along quickly. You know, nothing to see here, folks. Keep going. Keep moving along. Go home to your families. No, can't be allowed to happen. They must be held accountable. It sounds like a conspiracy theory. Oh, they're going to bring in a digital currency. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's in the budget. Buried in the budget. I think it's something like page 214. Well, someone dug it out. And uh, good old Justin Trudeau, who admires China's basic dictatorship so much, is starting 
to uh, implement an infrastructure to build a, uh, a central bank digital currency. And our banking association seems to be all on board with that. They certainly love the idea of a digital, a digital identity. They're taking the lead on that. It's a conspiracy theory. Don't believe, Richard. All right. Something else that we have to contend with. We've talked about it a lot in this program, and we're going to keep hammering away at it before it's too late. Maybe it is. I don't know. Bill 67, Racial Equity in the Education System Act, has uh, already passed second reading in the Ontario legislature. It's uh, now under review by the Standing Committee on Social Policy. They could ram it through. It could get third reading. It could become law before the June 2nd provincial election. But you need to know about it. And there are petitions out there, stopwoke.ca. You can sign up to those and, and try and end, put an end to this madness. But until then, we just have to keep talking about it, talking about it. Ross McKittrick is a professor of economics at the University of Guelph, and he recently wrote an open letter warning the Ontario government about Bill C-67, the racial equity bill. Ross, welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks. Uh, I'm fine, thanks. You know, it, uh, when I uh, there was only one MPP who stood up and voted against it, and that was uh, uh, Belinda Carahelios from the, the New Blue, and some others who voted for it said, well, they were confused. They really didn't understand uh, which is kind of confusing to me. I read the bill. It's six pages long. The language is pretty clear. Now, I, don't, I can't excuse any MPPs for saying, well, we didn't understand. There, there may be some people who don't understand, for example, the difference between equity and equality. So the name in the, in the bill, uh, racial equity, that sounds nice to a lot of people. Who could be against racial equity? Can you explain the difference, as you see it, between racial equity and equality? Well, uh, part of your point there is just a lot of these terms aren't defined in the bill. And so what we need to do is figure out, well, do the authors of the bill have something in mind? And in the academic world, uh, equity tends to be shorthand for equality of outcomes. So um, equality to most people would mean equality of opportunity. But in a free and democratic society, we don't guarantee equality of outcome. Uh, that's got to come down to individual efforts and circumstances and things like that. Um, in um, racial anti-bias training of the kind that a lot of people in their employment now uh, have to go through, um, Inequality is usually defined by looking at um, data on outcomes in society. And if there's any disparities or inequalities, then that's said to be an argument for evidence for uh, racial bias and, and racism. And so this kind of language in the bill, without providing definitions, it does mean we're about to enshrine into the law um, requirements that people promote equality of outcome. And that's, that's certainly one of many problems with this bill because it uses terminology without defining it and then creates uh, what are basically judicial proceedings, which every teacher in Ontario will now be subject to, or um, that, that's going to impose on them a whole bunch of requirements for their conduct in the classroom that I, I just don't think they see, uh, I don't think they realize what's coming because uh, the language is so loose and the punishments are so severe. 
those same punishments could conceivably uh, extend to students, correct? Uh, yes, there are provisions for um, uh, disciplinary measures for anyone in the school system, including students. And you have to understand the bill defines racism not only based on what you do or the specific actions you take, but it could be subconscious. It can be based on your demonstrated level of awareness around certain issues. So um, it almost imposes an assumption of guilt and teachers may find that over time they have to start actively proving their innocence because there'll be this suspicious tribunal that's constantly looking into what they're doing and what they're saying. Um, right in the opening of the bill, it does define that um, the infractions that they're thinking about here as including subconscious bias. So it really gets into what I think is a frightening realm of policing thought and, and compelling speech. The other term people may not fully appreciate or understand is anti-racism uh, or, I mean, anti-racism again, or, or anti-hate, uh, anti-racism. Anti Who could be against racism, in other words? What, what, is, what is meant by anti-racism in this context? Yeah, and I, I think this is really the big thing that people need to understand. I would suspect most Canadians think of anti-racism as being connected to the idea that Dr. Martin Luther King expressed of he dreams of a society where a child is, is judged on the basis of the content of his or her character, not the color of his or her skin. In other words, anti-racism in that sense means you're going to pay no attention to race, to skin color, to things like that. And we're just going to look at uh, the content of each other's character, the things that really matter. And like I say, I think that's what most people have in mind when they hear a term like anti-racism. What they don't realize, though, is that the term um, has come to be associated with a particular school of thought at the universities called critical race theory. And it's almost the polar opposite. Um, critical race theory puts forward the idea that racism is built in uh, inescapably into society, that there's no getting away from it, and therefore every social situation now needs to be ordered according to race with the specific goal of eliminating the racism that we have to assume is always there. And so um, where that kind of anti-racism ideology is put in place, instead of race uh, receding to the background and people just dealing with each other as individuals, you get into extremes of identity politics where the only characteristics that matter now are your skin color and, and um, features like that. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. 
Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. With the express message that you can never get past them, that you can never have a colorblind society or a society free of racism. So um, a big part of what I object to about this bill is like these are contentious debates in academia, and they, they might seem very abstract, but they, they really do have real-world consequences. The bill is taking one side of that debate, and it's saying this is now the official doctrine of the Ontario educational system, and every single teacher and every single student has to adhere to it. And you will be evaluated annually based on your efforts to promote this doctrine. There's no subtlety about it. Um, there's, there isn't even any room for teachers to bring this material into the classroom in a neutral, scholarly way and, and say, well, let's contrast the philosophy behind the civil rights movement of the 1960s with the modern critical race theory and, and talk about the differences there. To do that, and this has been the experience in the United States where, where teachers have tried to do this, just to do that, to bring in the writings of people who are critical of critical race theory, gets them in trouble because, okay, now you are pushing back against what they call anti-racism. And the nasty thing about the language is if you are perceived as pushing back against anti-racism, therefore you are a racist. And anything that you might say in defense of an accusation like that it can easily be turned around just as further proof that you are resisting anti-racism and you're part of the problem. Right. You mentioned MLK Jr. and this notion of judging one by the, their character rather than the color of their skin and colorblindness. That very notion under CRT is considered racist. I mean, MLK Jr. would be uh, would be in this, you know, pushed into this star chamber under uh, Bill 67 and, and, um, and probably tried and uh, found guilty. Um, we'll have to, uh, if, if, uh, if you're able, we'd, we'd love to have you back on and, and discuss further. We, we need to, uh, talk about this as much as we possibly can before it's too late. Uh, Ross McKittrick, professor of economics at the university of uh, Guelph and Ross, where can we read your open letter? Um, it's at, uh, the true North center news. So at tnc.news and you can find it there. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time, Ross. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, when we come back, the uh, digital currency conspiracy. Well, it's not a conspiracy, and they're laying the groundwork for it to come to Canada. What does it all mean? Why you should be concerned? Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph, is next with that one. Stand by. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Central bank digital currency. Think of uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, Ethereum, but this cryptocurrency isn't crypto. It would be controlled by the central bank, the Central Bank of Canada, for example. And uh, I've read where about 80% of central banks around the world are considering adopting a digital currency. It would replace the Canadian dollar, paper money. We would go cashless. What's wrong with that? Well, 
There are a number of important implications having to do with your privacy, first and foremost. And yet, despite the fact that this is heading our way like a freight train, there are still those who deny and, and consider it to be a, just a complete conspiracy theory. However, there are provisions that were uncovered in the latest federal budget that indicate the federal government is serious about this. They are laying the groundwork to create a central bank digital currency for Canada. Daniel Boardman is senior contributor for the National Telegraph. Daniel, welcome back. How are you, buddy? Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, uh, doing well. It's uh, kind of serendipitous that we caught this just after I got back from Miami uh, at the Bitcoin conference. Oh, uh, learned a go. lot more about uh, all these issues, and then boom, uh, the Liberals put in the budget. So uh, it gave us it gave us a lot to talk about there, and, I, and I'm glad we went now because now I can pretty much tell the difference between um, a cryptocurrency and a CBDC. So. I mean, there would be a lot of pro-Bitcoiners who would be very mad at your intro because cryptocurrencies are nothing like uh, CBDCs. Well, that was my – I was trying to make that point and maybe I did it yeah. in a very clumsy manner. My point was oh, – Oh, I got it. But Bitcoin's a bit of a religion. So right, uh, that's what I'm right. – well, I'm, 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 I may become an adherent. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a late adopter uh, on so many things and I'm trying to learn about Bitcoin. Uh, it is confusing, but let's let's focus yeah. on uh, uh, the central bank digital currency, and uh, just to kind of explain how that would work if a country like Canada were to adopt it and get rid of, let's say, you know, paper money. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see the appeal they would give to a wide swath of the Canadian public, or, or if they could be marketed correctly, right? Oh, you know, paper money, there's so much trees or plastic production. You know, you could have it on uh, your wallet. You could have it stored on your computer. Don't worry, there'd be a separate copy for the Bank of Canada and the government. So it would be secure in the sense that, oh, don't, you can't lose your money or misplace it, something, something, something. You know, you could have a code when you input it. So it'd be all very secure. But the problem is, uh, this gives the Bank of Canada and the government full control over your wallet at all times. It also means they can track literally everything you purchase. You can make that argument currently with credit card purchases, but in the modern world, we have the ability to, you know, take money out in cash and make transactions we don't want people finding out about for whatever reason. The other thing, the other problem with a CBDC is um, they could tie it to a social credit system or an ESG score, as it's called in Canada. So in China, they have the digital yuan now, and it's tied to a social credit score. So the more pro, the more ethical behavior as determined by the Chinese Communist Party, who has concentration camps, you do, the higher your central credit score, the more things you can do. You know, if you're bad, you know, you say, I support democracy in Hong Kong. Well, you can no longer purchase a train ticket, for example, and you can't go from point A to point B. Well, let's look at the ethics of the liberal government. Um, they don't like red meat um, because of that whole nonsense. So, you know, once you buy more than, oh, if you have a family, you can buy four pounds of red meat uh, a week, but uh, an individual can buy two, well, you've hit your limit. So, well, no, you can't purchase that steak when you go out because of that. You need to then buy this, right? So you can say, oh, it's, well, it's just pushing ethical behavior, but then what about the corporations at top that have more ability to lobby as to what ethics are, right? Then you can have corporations, you know, have pay to have their products essentially be more ESG friendly, and for those who don't know what ESG stands for, it's our social credit system. E is environmental. So if you buy a, a, a statue of Greta Thunberg, your credit score goes up. If you buy a gas car, it goes down. I can't wait to get my statue of Greta. Yes. Yeah. S is social justice. So literal left is gobbledygook. Um, and then G is governance. So that one's always undefined, but it's basically like how, how well do you adhere to the government is what it is. So enter 
all Orwellian thoughts. So you could easily have an, a social credit, uh, like a digital Canadian dollar tied to an ESG score, which would increase the purchasing power of certain segments of the population uh, and decrease the, seg uh, the segment, uh, the population that probably is listening to the Richard Sarek show right now. Uh, more than that, they can implement um, social engineering of, of what people can purchase. They can downgrade certain products. They could give breaks to, you know, the BIPOC coalition. They could say, well, racism is really bad. And, uh, you know, transgender people experience discrimination. So we're going to increase their purchasing power here. Like there's a lot of crazy social engineering you can do when you can literally control the everyone's bank account, wallet, and the price of commodities all simultaneously. Right. Add on so to the fact that you can all shut this down. So as we saw during the trucker thing, you know, they went across the banks that they didn't, they just, in, they had to invoke the emergencies act and they freezed everyone's bank account. Well, you have bill 100 in Ontario where Doug Ford wants to make some of this powers permanent. You have federal push to make some of this permanent. Uh, and then you'd have a currency that can literally be shut off with a push of a button from the central banks or the Canadian government. Um, and you know, this is, this is a horrifying reality to a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, Daniel, there's we're going to take a quick time out here. Uh, we'll come back and discuss further. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph, thenationaltelegraph.com. Please visit and uh, support our independent media, thenationaltelegraph.com. Uh, back with more of our conversation on central bank digital currencies right after these. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Imagine this, maybe the uh, the government thinks, yeah, you're drinking a little too much. Uh, so you go to the Lickbo or you go to the uh, brewer's retail, the beer store, and uh, you, you go to pay for your, uh, your bottle of hooch or a six-pack with your digital currency card, and the transaction is denied because the government knows best. And this, this would be a wonderful opportunity for them to shape behaviors, social credit. The social credit system like they have in China. Let's say you, you go to the travel agency or you go to Expedia.com and you want to book a flight to Greece. Well, wait a minute. You flew to Greece three years ago. You're at your max. We got to cut down on air travel. We have to cut down on the uh, carbon emissions. So your trip to Greece has been denied. These are the kinds of powers conceivably that could be given to the power, uh, to the government if a digital, a central bank digital currency were implemented. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually in the budget. It was buried in the budget. Daniel, who uncovered it? Who found it? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Oh, I think you're on mute. 
Yeah, I was on mute there. Sorry. It, uh, it was uncovered by our Bitcoin and finance uh, columnist, uh, Neil McKenzie Souter. He was uh, looking through it uh, there and he found the exact terminology, central bank digital currencies, which is what they're going to be studying. Um, they'll, they'll comp- first, there's uh, so there's money in a budget to complete a study and when we need if we need it, knowing this government, we're going to need it. It's going to be great. Uh, and then they'll have it till 2025 to try and implement some sort of pilot program. Um, to get it in. And there's many ways they do it is they'd probably offer people sort of free money on this app. Like, do you want free money that no one else would have? And then, you know, some people be like free money. That's great. And then they pull them like, did you like free money? And people say, yes, I did. Oh, look, <laughs> it it works. Made people happier. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it. And this is sort of China's plan in Africa is to sort of get them on the digital yuan by just giving them like $2,000 here. Now you can use it. And like, great. Um, so yeah, Neil did a great job uncovering it. And we at the National Telegraph are gonna go sort of full out to stop it. So it was really nice that you sent me the, like, hey, do you wanna talk about this today? Cause this week we're putting together an entire program to stop uh, the CBDC uh, experiment in government. And like the way we think that's best is, you know, one, like a petition, we're gonna put it in an email list, um, but we're just gonna try and sort of raise one awareness of what's happening so people know, but two, like ways to counter it. And like, what's the difference between a CBDC and Bitcoin? Like one is, Orwellian nonsense. And the second Bitcoin is actually fully de- decentralized. Like you're your own bank. You're, all your transactions are completely untraceable. Um, they have the Lightning Network now, so it's just as fast as everything else. And also sort of aggregate all the different people and, and news outlets who are going to be talking about this and give any sort of news outlet or politician who talks about it a way to gain exposure, but exposure, but also cross-contamination. So there would actually be some sort of freedom caucus um, opposing it because that's sort of how Bill C-10 was stopped back in the days people became sort of aware with, of it and the Conservative Party decided to talk about it uh, now they decided not to talk about C-11 because they're lazy uh, but this it's the only way things get stopped in Canada is if it reaches enough critical mass so we're sort of working on a system of, uh, and an email list and an entire plan uh, this week to, to get together to stop the CBDCs because once those are implemented um, it's game over for any freedom movement ever in Canada you can never start another um, organization the government wouldn't like ever again unless you're on the, the the list of approved people and no one who would do anything that would really you know challenge government power would ever get on this list so it's you know it, it's sort of our number one um, uh, goal of sort of thing to stop at the National Telegraph but yeah it was, it was uncovered by our finance columnist uh, Neil McKenzie Souter so, is this the origin of the uh, the central bank digital currency is this coming out of the World Economic Forum yeah, it's coming from a lot of places. So the World Economic Forum is a big, a big proponent of this. Um, well, all central bankler, bankers love it, and all sort of, I mean, you could use the term globalist, but any sort of um, social utopian loves this because, despite um, two thousand five hundred, two, two to five thousand years of evidence to the contrary, there are still people who believe that if the system is perfect and you know, the social constructionists, if you can create the perfect system, then people will be perfect. And this is a great tool. So yeah, Klaus Schwab loves it, but you could also blame it on the IMF and Christine Lagarde, um, you know, all the world banks, because it gives them full control over the system. And, you know, they're pretty convinced that if they can control everyone's purchases, well, they can make the, the world a better place. And then, you know, you don't even need to print money. You could just click and make more money. Uh, so all their bad ideas uh, get uh, extradited. And like, if you're Klaus Schwab and you want a great reset, well, how do you, I mean, now with, with if CBDCs are in, implemented, you can literally have a great reset with the click of a button, 
they wipe out all your debts. Well, this is how you get to the world. How, like, it sounds crazy and like, you will own nothing and you'll be happy, right? We'll have a debt-free society. Well, our debt's running away, it's crazy. Our, our, our gov liberal government's plan to stop inflation is to print more money and spend it and then give away more money and then print more money. That will stop inflation. Um, but you get to a point where like, oh, debts are gone crazy, the economy's collapsing. collapsing. Okay, throw all your money on the digital thing. We'll reset all, all the debts and then we'll go forward in this new thing. Um, and that's how you can reset, like CBDCs, boom, um, you own nothing. And I'm not sure how happy you'll be um, in this dystopian world. But if they get CBDCs, a great reset could take less than a second. And that's terrifying. It is terrifying. Uh, just last question, Daniel. Uh, conservative leadership hopeful Pierre Polyev was asked very quickly uh, in, in a video I saw whether he would be for a digital uh, identity or digital currency. He says he's opposed. He seems very bullish on on, on cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular. Um, he wants to give Canadians, you know, that freedom because let's face it, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin could make uh, ultimately it could make banks irrelevant. It could make government in in large measure irrelevant. Do we trust Pierre Polyev when he says he's against digital currency? I mean, how much do you trust any politician? That's a great thing. Now, Pierre Polyev seems to actually understand what he's talking about. He does seem to hate inflation. And, you know, he, he looks like he literally does want to, like, fight in the concept of inflation. So I do kind of believe him when he's against CBDCs, because that's, that is, I think, his worst nightmare is, like, a magical inflation machine. And Bitcoin is a deflationary asset that's self-custodial, does eliminate the need for banks, like you can become your own banks if you hold your own keys. Um, and, you know, there's, there's people who know a lot more as I'm a Bitcoin baby, uh, in a sense, just getting into it. But I do trust Pierre Polyev on this particular thing. Um, he does seem to understand, uh, if not the social dangers of it, but the economic dangers of it. So, yeah, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. All right, Daniel, we'll have to have more of these conversations because it's coming our way. Uh, the central bank digital currency, watch out for it. Be uh, forewarned and forearmed. Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor for the National Telegraph, thenationaltelegraph.com. Support our independent media. All right, when we come back, uh, we'll speak with a professor of uh, law. Uh, at uh, Lakehead University about how we should be holding the government accountable for not only using the Emergencies Act, but by justifying it on a mountain of lies. That conversation in three minutes. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Well, the Emergencies Act which um, gave police extra powers to deal with protesters up in Ottawa. It saw to the, uh, which uh, led to uh, the freezing of bank accounts. Anyone who supported uh, the truckers could have had their bank accounts frozen and now flagged for life. Uh, these extraordinary powers that were granted to the government were about to be extended, but the, uh, the Canadian Senate, thank God, I think made it pretty clear they were holding firm. They would not extend or vote to extend the Emergencies Act. And so I guess rather than face this political embarrassment, the uh, the Emergency Act was suspended or rescinded. And now there is a, a parliamentary review looking at whether the Emergency Act was justified. And the Liberals are, are trying to uh, to limit the scope and the length of that review because things are coming to light uh, that uh, – 
don't make them look <laughs> very good. Mainly that the, the justification for the Emergency Act is seems to have been built on a mountain of lies. So how do we hold the federal government accountable, not only for using the Emergency Act, but also for justifying it uh, with um, misleading information? Ryan Alford is a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, and he wrote a, a terrific article that can be found at uh, the McDonald Laurier uh, Institute's website, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm well, Richard. Thank you, and my pleasure. So let's talk about uh, some of the misleading information uh, that was used to justify the imposition of this Emergencies Act. Um, where, where should we begin? Should we, we talk about the, the funding of the truckers? Absolutely. And I want to make it clear, when they provided this information to Parliament, it was subject to a statutory requirement of the Emergencies Act. The Emergencies Act takes very seriously the idea the government needs to justify the invocation of the act. So what was tabled in Parliament was shocking to many legal observers. I'm not just speaking for myself, but for many people. A unsigned, unsworn document that makes reference to hacked information. So when we're talking about the funding, the official explanation required by the Emergencies Act that was tabled in Parliament at the beginning of the debate refers explicitly to hacked information. No chain of custody, no indication that it's accurate. And then it was later revealed, and this is in sworn testimony to the Public Safety and National Security Committee, that that information, as assessed by CBC News, that's in the rationale as well. So its key sources are hacked information with no chain of custody and CBC News analysis of what is clearly information with no chain of custody. It's rebuked by information provided by FinTrack to a parliamentary committee, which says that the allegation in that explanation that 80% or more of the donations came from the United States was patently false. Right. So it's interesting. <laughs> the media, uh, which in my estimation are simply you know carrying water for the government, they float this narrative. Then the police or whatever authority uh, acts on this report from the media, uh, but it's kind of this circular logic. Well, you know, or the police will say, well, we read it in the media. Uh, right. And that goes into affidavits filed by the police, which is really quite shocking, especially when the media outlet in question is what we would call, with respect to foreign countries, state-controlled media. Precisely. So um, there was absolutely no um, veracity to this story that, uh, you know, that, that this was a uh, – uh, an insurrection being uh, being uh, hatched by you know pro-Trump elements in the United States, and that and that certainly you know they were talking about insurrection. They were it seems they were trying to turn uh, the uh, the Freedom Convoy into another January sixth event. But there were other other um, misleading. Well, there were lies really. One of them by I believe it was the security minister. Uh, suggesting that the truckers were uh, some of the truckers were rapists or potential rapists. There was no, there were there were no reports about that. Where did that come from? Well, it was remarkable because again, in this official explanation, when they're talking about the links between the organizers of the trucker convoy and ideologically motivated violent extremists, which is the language of the criminal code for terrorists, they, they describe those links as ideological links. So not logistical links, not practical links, 
no allegation that those ideologically motivated violent extremists are funding the protests or in any way supporting the protest materially, but rather that the protesters are somehow being egged on or being supported merely by virtue of some sort of congruency of belief. That's clearly not legally adequate. And whenever the, the minister was challenged on this, he backpedaled rather furiously. Um, so it was interesting, even when the media, tame as it was, said, well, can you tell us more about this? He immediately backed away. So it raises the implication that some of these rationales for the invocation of the Emergencies Act were made in bad faith. And that's extremely troubling. Uh, indeed it is. Uh, Ryan, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, we'll talk about some of the other uh, lies that were floated by the uh, Liberal government to justify the imposition of the Emergencies Act. And then we'll we'll find out how we can hold them accountable. Ryan Alfred, professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, and his uh, article can be found at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. We know they lied. They know we know they lied. We know they know we know they lied, and still they lie. We're talking about the government's emergency uh, act that was uh, invoked on a mountain of lies. And uh, Ryan Alford is a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at the, at the Lakehead University and is uh, here explaining how we should hold them accountable. Uh, Perrin Beatty, uh, Beatty was, um, now I'm not sure when uh, he drafted the current uh, Emergencies Act. I think it was in the mid-80s when he was Solicitor General. I could be wrong about that. But this was to replace the Old War Measures Act. And uh, Baron Beatty has recently said, you know, he never imagined in his wildest dreams that the Emergency Act would be uh, invoked in his lifetime. Uh, what were the what were the provisions that I mean, how did they change the Old War Measures Act uh, to make sure, you know, that um, our, our rights would be protected? And, and, and how did it change? Basically, I guess is what I'm asking. It was meant to be more restrictive than the War Measures Act. So. Two key restrictions, one being that the emergency has to be of such magnitude that it threatens the national security and territorial integrity of Canada. So that's a very high threshold. And then the second is to say, well, depending on the type of public order emergency you have, you have to meet other thresholds. So you have to be talking about, essentially, as you mentioned, an insurrection or an attempt to overthrow the government of Canada. And that is why it was really hard to contemplate, you know, going out of the 80s into the 21st century, that there will be anything of that magnitude. And the problem being, if it is invoked without those conditions being met, the government is not just abusing its powers, but it's expanding the scope of its own powers beyond what it can do under the Constitution of Canada. And that's the most cynical and destructive thing you can do in a rule of law state. So it seems like they were trying to construct falsely construct a narrative uh, that that there was an insurrection that the the you know that this was this would meet the the, the test as sort of laid out by Perrin Beatty in the in the mid 80s so now we have this this uh, parliamentary review uh, the liberal government now has this alliance with the NDP so what do we what can we expect to come out of this review and uh, what would be the next step then to hold the government accountable how do we do that well, again, this is just so cynical. About a week before the coalition was announced, and I imagine the negotiations were 
ongoing during that time, the government said, well, we want a neutral chair for this committee. Now, the normal convention is that the official opposition provides the chair of any oversight committee. That will be a conservative. But saying, well, we want a neutral chair, they brought in Matthew Green of the NDP. And his statements about what the Parliamentary Review Committee is going to investigate clearly indicates that they're trying to promote the narrative that this was an insurrection, that it was funded with foreign funds, that it was directed from outside. And more importantly, to the end of saying that the people who were protesting and involved in constitutionally protected political activity should not be treated as people engaging in politics, but rather as people who are guilty of something akin to sedition. Yes, except that that uh, that narrative has been proven false. I mean, you had the director of FinTrack come on and say, no, that, that's not what happened. Well, you see the line that the Senate didn't buy and why they pulled the plug on the Emergencies Act at that moment. It was when the Senate said, we are not going to accept assertions brought forward by intelligence agencies if you won't let us see the intelligence underneath it. And right now, what they're going to do is they're going to play this double game where they rely upon intelligence summaries. They swear people to secrecy about them. And then they refuse to allow people, even members of parliament or senators, access to the underlying intelligence that would likely disprove it. Okay, so we're not going to get any um, a remedy through the review committee, uh, but you point to something called the Inquiry Act. That may be our salvation. It's remarkable. There's been no notice of this. It's a requirement in the act. They have 60 days to convene a public inquiry, and this is a very serious matter. It's what we would have called previously a royal commission, headed up usually by a retired Supreme Court justice, someone of that stature. And that body can say, well, give us the, the rationale, give us all the underlying information, and don't hide behind something like cabinet confidences or national security as a means of withholding this information. And when they make those documentary requests, it's done in a very public way, where if it's not being produced, the obvious question is, why are you trying to hide this? So it's really remarkable that we haven't heard about them announcing or setting up this public inquiry, despite the fact that they're clearly required to do so by statute. Well, how, what is the mechanism for launching this inquiry? It's just automatic. It, within 60 days of revoking uh, a proclamation of the Emergencies Act, it just comes into being. But the step that has to be taken is just an announcement by ordering council. So that's just essentially a document drawn up by the Privy Council Office and gets the signature of the Governor General saying, this is what the Committee of Inquiry will investigate. Now that mandate, there's no scope for negotiation because it's established by the Emergencies Act. The only really uh, detail that needs to be filled in is the identity of the commissioners, which judge is gonna serve as the commissioner of the inquiry. So I don't understand why there's been any delay um, or why the government hasn't moved forward with this, given the clear statutory requirement and the ease of doing so. Now might be a good time for the leader of the opposition, Candace Bergen, to, to stand up in the House and just go, <clears throat> <clears throat> And they've done so. I, I know that I've seen people like Leslie Lewis talk about the timeline, about the 60 days rapidly coming to a close. Uh, this is the opportunity for the opposition to say, this would be the most serious breach of the government's duties imaginable. And I think that would resonate with the Canadian public, because now, given that all this information is coming out, that the officially stated rationale was a pretext, people really want to know. And I think they're also aware that when it comes to something like this, it's not the crime that brings the government to heel. It's the cover up. 
Where have we heard that before, Richard Nixon? <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Ryan. I appreciate it. And people can read the uh, the article, Holding the Government Accountable for Using the Emergency Act. Uh, Ryan Alford for Inside Policy at the McDonald Laurier Institute's website, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Thank you so much for this. A real pleasure, Richard. Anytime. Likewise. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, Brandon, and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.